It's no secret the NFL has a problem with race. Think Colin Kaepernick. Think Brian Flores. But this isn't a new problem. It's one that started as far back as the 1930s, with a ban on Black players in the NFL, with a past that informs the present. Blackballed is a new miniseries podcast from The Ringer about the four men who broke the color barrier in football. I'm your host, Chelsea Stark-Jones. You can find Blackballed on The Ringer NFL feed. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me finally back in the studio, it's Japandi Greenwald! First of all, we were not in the studio prior to my international departure. Because of, I was I was Philadelphia CR. Because of your, your, yeah, you were traveling. Yeah, that's okay. Everybody travels. Some of us take beautiful pictures of where we travel and uh. post them to Instagram. And get lots of people being like, damn, I love this content. No one in this room, but I've been told that people in this room have been told by other people that they like it. Yeah, that's right. That's how Kaya I don't even know how to breaks. like Instagram stories. Can you do that? Like when somebody posts a story, can you be like, good job? Yeah. You know how you do that? What? You pick up the phone. Uh-huh. You dial my digits and you say, hey, buddy, saw your story. Good International? Job. You think I'm made of money? FaceTime audio, baby. <laughs> it's fine. You can make those trans-specific phone calls? <laughs> it's fine. You have an uh, MCI card, don't you still? Great to see you. Listen, I hope it's good to see me. We have stuff to talk about. You have guests today. I do. Yeah, we have some really cool guests today. Sonny Lee and Jake Schreier, who are the two of the guys. Sonny obviously created the show. Maybe not obvious to people. They created Beef, which is on Netflix today. Uh, all 10 episodes stars Steven Yeun and Ali Wong. Really like this show. Really, really, really cool show. Really interesting show. Um, it's like 10 episodes, 30 minutes each. And it's basically like Ali Wong uh, plays a basic like uh, kind of owns like a boutique furniture and home decor store. Stephen Young plays a down on his luck contractor. They have a road rage in- incident to start the uh, series and everything goes from there. But it's a great throw a cinder block in the pond and see all the ripple effects kind of black comedy, thriller, character study. It's really cool. I'm really excited to talk to Jake and Sonny about the show. That's later on in this episode. Other admin I thought mm. I would mention. Please. As may have you may have heard on, on the Bill Simmons podcast, we did not get succession screeners this week. No. So we will be doing our podcast on Monday morning. Bill, Joanna, Sean, they're going to go Sunday night, but we're going to go Monday morning in the studio, marinate on it, sit on it, yeah. think about it. And uh, I think my, our, our take will we'll be more... We'll have a little bit of video for that too as well, I think. Our take will be more sober, I think. Not in terms of any. I'm getting shithoused but... <laughs> at eight in the morning. So Kai and I are doing sake shots all morning. Just a round of bloodies. Before we go. Uh, anyway, good to see you. Here's, here's what's on our agenda. Yeah. And you can just tell me what you want to go with first. There was oh, a okay. industry shaking article in the Hollywood Reporter. Kit Harrington joining industry. Dude, do you want to talk about that first? <laughs> Keep going. You set, right. you set the table. The agenda is basically there's a big Amazon piece, yes. a piece about Amazon Prime TV and Amazon Studios in the Hollywood Reporter by Kim Masters. Had a lot of talking heads talking. We were going to chat about that a little mm-hmm. bit. Number two, Kit Harrington. Is going to be on Industry Season 3. 
the HBO universe is collapsing on itself, mm -hmm. and he's playing a guy named Henry Muck. I mean, that's so good. Which is really great. Um, and what else? Oh, Perry Mason remains a pretty amazing and elite television show that I want to talk to you about. That I think we should be talking about more, frankly. Well, we can talk about it today on this podcast. But first, I just want to check in with you. Because, okay. you know, we haven't been in person in a minute. I've, I've accrued some stamps in my... <laughs> Literally got 25 minutes. Passport. It's fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I feel like you, you said right before we started that you want to be a new you. I want oh, to know yeah. more about this. Because yeah. when you greeted me at the door... Kai, you don't know this. I got all back. Chris opened the door and just started walking. No, that's because I Chris, let you... Chris stood up and walked. He took, he finally listened. Did you know that Born Legacy is the number two streaming movie on Netflix right now? Yeah, we were right, by the way. Maybe next Thursday we should just talk about Born Legacy. It's all I Have ever want to talk before? about. Have we ever done like a yeah. Born Legacy episode? No, because I think we've always said that we're going to get Tony Gilroy to come talk about it with us. Somewhat and... busy right now? Okay. Per... Recent reports from London, he's a little bit busy until uh, late summer 24, okay. but I think he'd make time for us. Well, maybe Born Legacy can can keep the streak alive and just be a top 10 Netflix movie for, for, for sure. about 58 weeks. By the way, listen to Chris dissemble. Listen to him change the subject. He doesn't want to talk about his you know new what it is? Uh, personality. I, I just, we just have a busy day, you okay. know? And uh, I was thinking about becoming a little bit more straightforward because <laughs> I think I garnish <laughs> my takes a lot. And okay, how do you how do you mean? You put a little extra mustard on them? What it's you... just like a, a lot of ornamentation to my stuff. You okay. Know, I often will have caveats and right. you know, digressions. And How long do you want these podcasts to be? Like, we could do a 12-minute I know exactly <laughs> how I long I want this podcast to be. <laughs> All right, fine. Okay, so we're going to be more direct. No, I, I want to... We can chat about whatever you want. You want to talk about cherry blossoms? You want to talk about... No. Tamago? No. Whatever, what do you want to talk about? You just, just <laughs> dropping the two Japanese things you know about? <laughs> I'm reading a novel set in Japan you right now. You want to talk about Tokyo Vice? I would love to. I mean, my my experience of it. Did you find that... Uh, did you ever watch Tokyo Vice at all? Um, did that's you watch a the no. pilot? That's a no. God damn you. <laughs> Look, I'm being straightforward with you. I could have garnished it. Dragging you up a fucking TV mountain every day. <laughs> um, this is how Jen Salk feels. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's do that. Okay, so there was an article in the Hollywood Reporter uh, this week, last week. It, it was. I don't. I've lost track of time. I don't know what time zone I'm in. But it well, was I only know about it because you know I, I I know about it because I read the Hollywood Reporter every day over a cup of of steaming hot coffee, black, and a plate coffee. of runny eggs. Yeah, <laughs> and a slice of cantaloupe, and I know about it because That's after it's you do the same article pool, that gets right? written about yeah. every streaming service. That's my take. That's fair. It's nothing wrong with Kim Masters' reporting, which is thorough. They got a lot of people on the record. There's yeah. a lot of numbers. They got a lot of people off the record. What they too, paid I would for say. the Citadel, the Russo Brothers show that's coming soon, what they paid for League of Their Own, what they played for Air, the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck movie, which is a movie I will be seeing too sweet after we're done today. I can't wait. But I think that this has now become kind of like a rite of passage, especially for the streamers that are extensions of tech companies where there's just a lot of, what ho, seems like you do things different here. It's supposed to kind of like your usual uh, traditional Warner Brothers Paramount style studios. Although I would argue that all of those places are trying their best to become more and more like tech companies anyway. So let's kind of like chat a little bit about some of the headlines that you sure. thought came out of this Amazon story. Okay. Uh, one is they spend a shitload of money. Uh huh. I think we all knew that. But a lot of that was a little bit, I think, obscured by the headlines. Like, everyone knows, and we've referenced this a lot, that like the entire Lord of the Rings series outlay was like a quarter of a billion dollars. I think even before the show aired, that doesn't include international marketing, that doesn't include future seasons or future development. So 
we knew that they were spending a lot of money. The amount of money that they just spend almost casually is staggering. Mm-hmm. You know, I look, it's no secret that costs of everything has, have gone through the roof over the last few years as people have demanded higher quality and bigger stars are involved, et cetera, et cetera. And worth mentioning that uh, until recently, these costs were probably accounted for upfront costs because there's not going to be some back-end residual that also matters home video and or syndication for for your shows that also absolutely matters but you see things thrown around like daisy jones and the six a show that we loved that we are not done talking about we're going to revisit um next week that's a tv mountain i just pulled myself up happily (laughs) i loved watching that show um but it says that costs like 160 million dollars to make um you look at some of the other things that they do, just the, the, the cost of doing business or the way they've done business is throwing out overall deals um, to secure talent, to pay a premium for people that might not otherwise want to develop in these places like Donald Glover, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And then you look at what the quote-unquote return on investment is. And again, we're not in the rooms. We don't know what they're developing. We don't know what's still coming down the pike. But these are, what, eight-figure deals mm-hmm. with questionable return, right? And then, I mean... The Russo Brothers thing is also just wild. I did yes. not understand it. it. It does seem like you can rewind this to the germ of an interesting idea and strategy, right? Right. Do you want to talk through it? This feels like a show that you would like to watch, potentially. I'm reserving my judgment on The Citadel, which is a show with Richard Madden and uh, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, right? Uh, yes, yeah. correct. Uh, uh, it, which is like an international spy show. The the idea of which is that this first season of the show mm-hmm. is going to spawn multiple multi-language adaptations or extensions. Yes. Like, So they're it, already making an Italian version of this show or an Italian spinoff of this show and that it can be a truly global franchise. Yeah, I believe there's an Indian version I'm too. I'm just hearing now that my Russo brothers direct deposit went through, so that's great. Ching. I mean, that's... <laughs> They keep, they are the Cayman Islands, I think, at this point. I think so. But this was, again, this is sort of interesting. It's top-down, maybe it's tech company-style reverse engineering. Jen Salky, who is head of Amazon Creative Content, has a lot of... Uh, I think I called her Salk earlier. My apologies to Jen Salky. And Dr. Jonas Salk, <laughs> who was not involved in this, yeah. although a biopic by him starring Adrian Brody was just put into development was by Amazon really? for $200 million. Oh, okay. No, that you're was just, a bit. You're just, being, you're just being cruel now. What's cruel? I'm ready to rebut whenever you want. Re, re, reboot? No, I'm going to rebut your takes here. Oh, oh, I didn't know this was. Oh, this is this is the ultimate zag. shooter CR. Big Zon over here. I, I'm just saying. So Salky was like, our growth, like a lot of these streamers, is international and foreign language stuff. So why not create our own franchise that can be spun off around the world? That's smart. Going to the Russo brothers. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this without yet any return of investment. It's the little details too. When shows go top-down like this, you do end up seeing things like showrunner removed 10-episode season order drop to six episodes for the same cost as you know most shows spend on 20. It's just a lot of... There's a lot of noise mm-hmm. and not a lot of uh, signal, right? But here, hit me. Hit me with your take. My take is that, can you name me an overall deal that's ever worked? So um, starting, starting with the overall deals that they're passing out to Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Donald Glover, et cetera, et cetera. Can you name me like a, an overall deal that has just been like an absolute yes, like hit for the people who gave it. Well, I think the answer is yes, but it gets more complicated. Because we just that. did this with Warner Brothers with J.J. Abrams yeah. like six Look, months ago. I, I, as a writer who hopes to one day get another overall deal, like 
keep it coming. Yeah. Don't stop. This no, is I'm, great. I, I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot but, where you're just like, these are, these are a waste of money. Yes, like <laughs> tighten your purse strings, billionaires. <laughs> no, I think that there's a, I think there is a legitimate case to be made that the value, it, it's the same, this is, this is the easiest one-to-one sports analogy we could ever do because there's a case to be made that sometimes the value is not necessarily the production on the court. It is a sign of seriousness of intent. Mm-hmm. You bring someone into the fold, they bring other people into the fold. It announces things to the town or to other talent it's relationships. Like the Jets getting Aaron Rodgers. It's yeah. exactly. Yeah, exact. Well, the second part of it is <laughs> like that, in the sense that the danger for a lot of these studios can come from the fact that a lot of the really rich mega deals are the Albert Pujols contracts, are the you've been incredible. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to wildly balloon size overpay you for the back end of your career when you are less incentivized to be working at, this is unfair to Albert Pujols because that's just an age thing, but <laughs> sorry. this You know what? This is a terrible one-to-one analogy. Oh, no, it's also, it doesn't work. It's unfair to his pharmacist. <laughs> hey, 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 listen to, listen to CR. It's Friday. I don't know what's going on. Wow. I'm just hoping this one goes out into the ether and that Albert Pujols' <laughs> lawyers skip this episode of The Watch. Do you think they're big listeners? What if, Finally, what? another sports analogy. Yeah, you never know. Look, the, the overall thing, it, this, that's just been the cost of doing business. I do think that the bigger conversation here, there, there, there's shocking stuff in this article. There's eye-popping stuff. There's stuff that feeds into writer's paranoia heading into what appears like an almost inevitable strike. But it does come down to a very strange moment that I think is hinged on a couple things. One is the tech takeover of TV, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how decisions get made and how blame is spread around and, and what role creativity or inspiration or randomness or luck has and all that. That's been debated, and we will continue to, to debate it. The other thing is, all of these giant tech companies, which they are now streaming services, desperately trying to pivot back to becoming TV channels. And I think one of the, the, the underappreciated drumbeats of this Amazon story is, look, they have shows that people watch, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jack Reacher, like Terminalist. Like those work for them. People watch those shows. You and they don't have to say people. You can say, you can say the Chris guy, Ryan. The guy right across from I, me watches them. I yeah. also will say I love Daisy Jones. Yeah. I'll also will say that I love um I love the English, which was on also Amazon say Prime the, Video. That, like nobody else it swarms not on another channel. Yeah. And know, they like, make the boys. Yeah. Like so it's very hard. I think maybe one of the struggles with articles like this, or the reason for articles like this, is you just like with Amazon, where you can buy uh toilet paper and Cormac McCarthy novels is you can't really put your arm around what the service is. You're just, you're just, why are you looking right at me when you say exactly what I do on a Thursday? <laughs> just buy Cormac McCarthy novels and household items. I mean, you're just, you're swaying me here. But it, it so, so your takeaway is... I'm not trying to fuck with you. I'm really literally saying, like, tell me what in this article is uh-huh. different about any other article about any other streaming service, whether it's some people question whether or not they've, they're, they're relying too much on focus groups. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, people have been relying on focus groups since there's been people. Like, they, they always run this stuff through. what, And it just so happens that Amazon's probably going through some proprietary kind of data analysis with yeah. this stuff. I'm sure it's frustrating to be making stuff in that environment. I bet it's frustrating to be making stuff in any environment, especially with all the economic and labor uncertainty facing the, the industry well, and everything like that. I just, there was something weird about this piece, maybe because I was like, I don't know, Amazon seems to have like a pretty good hit rate ultimately. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this stuff also is coming bottom up, which is to say that a lot of And I don't mean people, commercial hit rate. I just mean like, that's a pretty good show. Yeah, they have a bunch of pretty good shows. I, I think that, I think that who's, a lot of the stuff, if you read between the lines, is who's running this town yes. in yes. capital letters. And a lot of creative people 
on the record in this piece, off the record in this piece, anecdotally in our lives, have had struggles working with this company. Mm -hmm. Not struggles like they haven't been well-paid or the shows haven't been made, but in terms of interactions, in terms of development, encouragement, like mixed messages, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that increasingly, there are two stories to be told, right? There are these companies that have so much money and could be doing anything. And then what does that mean? And that's, those are the Netflix, Amazons, Apples. And then there's, what, there's FX and HBO as the places where people are like, they still know how to do things the old-fashioned way, and they're going through their own crises sure. as they are being asked to become the other thing. So we end up kind of talking in circles when you get past the, the sort of eye-catching numbers, right, and the, and the headline-grabbing details. We end up kind of in the same murky middle, which is where the industry is, right? It's either going this way or that way, but right now it's not making much sense. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think that it, what's interesting about these stories is also the cycle of them where there's like the initial sort of like, I can't believe it. A, finally, a home for creatives where we're paid yeah. w- what we deserve and nobody interferes with our product. And then after a couple of years when people are like, how come these movies and TV shows are kind of shitty? It's like, well, we're, you know, we don't get any guidance about what they want. Nobody knows what they want. And it's like, yeah, I mean, like, this stuff is going to run in cycles. Like, I think if my big cr- critique of Amazon would be the same as my critique sometimes of Netflix, which is like, I don't know when stuff is coming out or what you guys think is good or like yeah. there's just kind of a, a, a fire hydrants opened aspect of the curation, right? Now, my my kind of issue with that is more that stuff like The English, which you have to wonder if it was on an HBO, although now increasingly that's yes. the only other thing I can point to, or maybe an Apple. Although I can tell you, I do not think that The English would get made for Apple. No, they wouldn't have made that. It's not affirmative enough. It's too weird. It's too arty. It's, it's not like straight down the middle. Yeah. But the issue is, is like, you can't only have HBO as the only place that's doing it right. Like, so... Correct. Uh, yeah, right? So it just turns into this thing where it's like, yeah, I guess this is the new reality where you're not going to get the, like, we're going to walk you up to the I, Emmy podium from development I, I, to finish. I, I think that your take on this is 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 the most useful, honestly. I, I think you win this one. Kaya, are we doing this around, <laughs> around the horn style? Give him some points. To my to young Woody Page over here because I think I think this is right and I think you said the word exactly when you said curation and I think that there's an element of our conversations that kind of do pine for an old school aesthetic curation yeah. for the stuff that comes to us where the sense that there is someone not just the creative person making the show but the but there are creative people on the other side of the desk sculpting the larger conversation and. This is a strange leap, but the other another thing that happened this week when I was away was the legendary A&R record man Seymour Stein died. Oh, yeah? and, and this is a figure that does not really exist in our culture anymore so much, where he had good ears, a good sense of, for business, and he signs the Ramones and Talking Heads and Madonna. Mm-hmm. And his legacy is unimpeachable in terms of what he chose to promote, what he chose to give the platform to. And you could kind of trust what Sire Records was, even though it didn't all sound the same. Mm-hmm. And we continually find ourselves lionizing people like a Casey or like a John Landgraf and his team at FX who seem to at least be able to maintain some aspect of that. Um, and maybe this is just too old-fashioned of us because... I, I think you're right. Like, we can have fun dancing on this Amazon article, and there's a lot of blame to be passed around here, clearly. But at the same time, there are people there who clearly care, who are championing good stuff. Yeah. Like, whether it's The Boys, which is consistently extremely good, whether it's Jack Reacher, which doesn't need to be as good as it is, frankly, and it is really fun and good, or The English and Daisy Jones. Like, that stuff— Or the Taylor Kitsch spinoff of Terminalist. Which we just can assume— 
No, is it's coming. Equally good. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I'm just saying that, like, you are correct to say that that is a pretty good hit list for what TV output was 15 years did ago. Did it need to cost $2 billion to make it? And did they also need to be 47 other original shows that we didn't even mention, some of which were good, some of which were bad, and most yeah, of which were Yeah, you know, I was middling. looking through this list, of, this list of the last couple of years of Amazon shows. Let me just go through it for you, just, just, just to kind of play it out. Will you watch an episode of The Citadel with me? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, it's an international spy show, of course. Are you going to watch Rachel Weisz and Dead Ringers? Fuck yeah, that's another one that I'm like, yes. And that's, by the way, you could be like, Jen Salky doesn't know what she's doing, but she apparently was like, Rachel Weisz and Dead Ringers, take the checkbook. Right. Cool. Daisy Jones and the Six, loved, loved it. Loved Swarm. It. I don't know if I can say I loved it, but I certainly re- like love that it's there. Incredible. The Rig, I watched it. It's about Scottish people stuck on a rig. Uh, you made that one up. No, I told you about this. There's this like, it's like everybody from Game of Thrones... <laughs> Is on a rig and there's a fog. But Stanley like, Tucci is there too, and it's winter, right? It's good. The special effects are a little rough. I don't know. They should have taken some of that Lord of, Lord of the Rings money. Devil's Hour. Some people dug it. That was the Peter Capaldi thing. Peripheral couldn't fuck with it. Lord that, of the Rings. That, that's an expensive. Didn't show. mind it. it. Paper Girls. I respect the fact that it didn't. Paper Girls might be an example of something where it's like, damn, the Golden Goose right there. That was like, pa- it was like a was, layup. Paper Girls was good. And I think that with... Paper more, Girls was good, like the show itself was good? I really like that show. All I right. finished it. There you go. I feel really sorry for what happened to it. And that's that would be a whole argument to be made if you, we actually had the intel to be like... My sense of that show is with a more focused development team that knew what they were doing and championed what they championed and cared about it, that would have been had better stewardship and made gone on for multiple seasons as it was intended to. Okay. A good show that didn't work. Terminalist? You love it. Did you ever watch any of Terminalist? I mean, I, sometimes you just you just know your. I space. just really love shows set in San Diego. Uh, <laughs> my wife loved The Summer I Turned Pretty. Outer Range is a banger. Reacher is a banger. Wheel of Time Pass. I keep calling it Jack Reacher because that's the Tom Cruise movie. And I actually kind of enjoyed the first few episodes. And I know what you did last summer. Wow. Which, and before it got nuts, they also made Underground Railroad. <laughs> they made The Wilds, which I enjoyed. You know, like th- this. That's like a pretty good list. You know what I mean? Kaya, Chris is angling for that free shipping through 2030. <laughs> Chris is getting gift cards. It's unbelievable. Oh my do you, God. Do you ever listen to this podcast on Prime Audio? <laughs> Certainly not. Okay. Uh, also, one last thing about Amazon. Yeah. I like the player. The Oh, oh, the like watch. You like the x ray thing. I like the UX of the Amazon. Now, I don't like the fact that it's like when you open up Amazon, I'm like, like carpal tunnel I, wristbands and, yeah, and I, J- I, Japanese crime novels. For what's like, worth, what? I cannot find <laughs> their programming. So yeah, I like the UX. I cannot find it. I didn't mean the UX of do like you, the search or like anything do, like that. Do you know how many episodes of Daisy Jones and the Six I've watched? All of them. <laughs> do you know how many times the player suggests watching or continuing Daisy Jones? Zero times. Yes. But when you're actually watching the like the player itself, yeah. I don't find it buggy. I think it's like very intuitive to be able. I also love like for our purposes going forward or backwards. Ten seconds is really useful for like taking yeah. notes. The X-ray thing is convenient. If I'm the, like, I know that guy. The X-ray it's thing, right there. I, I'll say that like when I'm watching Perry Mason, which we'll talk about momentarily, I do pause it sometimes. And I'm like, tell me who that guy is. Ah, do you say it to Siri? Me. Who do you say it to? Well, no, I say it to Alexa, <laughs> my young daughter. My daughter. <laughs> who Al- is this character? My daughter Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to her constantly. Yeah. Um. Good. Let's switch to Perry Mason. Wow, this is this has really been invigorating. We should always do podcasts with you, A, like this, <laughs> and B, with a hard cap. 
You know what I mean? We should be like NFL free agency. I love you, but like I'm, I just definitely want to get all of our okay, stuff down. Right. No, okay, I'm not. No, not. listen, the coffee's going down smooth. Let's keep it moving. Okay. Do you want to talk about Perry Mason now? Yeah. Yeah, I do. All right. Yeah. Why is this show so fucking satisfying? Because it's TV. <laughs> because it's a TV show. You, you know, know who sat in that very seat and said the same thing to me as Big Waz? Big Waz agrees. You, me, and Big Waz are the Perry Hive. First of all, I'm so so glad there's a third chair for AM to the PM because I was looking at our schedule for the next 12 months and it is yeah. going to be demanding. Yeah, but I think it would be cool if we launched a feed, you know, declared it AM to the PM. Yeah. Kai is the producer. We get new art and then we immediately go on hiatus. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. And we just put out like a really heartfelt statement to our fans. Is there a dormant <laughs> ringer feed that we could use? Like one that I'm sure. Uh, let's find look something. Let's look in the archives. Keeping it 1600? I Yeah, do we still have that, right? I guess. I mean, we just go right right at the top of the charts with AM to the PM. That would be amazing. Um I, it's ironic that we talk about this because HBO in the way we're talking about it is still HBO and that still has value whatever that means to whoever's listening. And yet HBO has this show that seems to us to be, in many ways, the exemplar of this new age of let's class up the old stuff. Yes. Of let's give people something consistent. Middle brow is not the right word. It is it's just not, satisfying. You know it is? It's like, done I, I at a very view it high as degree. like somewhere in Santa Monica or Culver City or wherever the HBO offices are, is there's like someone, there's like few people in like a basement office. Yeah. And they have like Boardwalk Empire posters up. They sure do. And they just like, they just crank, crank out like solid hour long like genre dramas, you know. In the same and, way that some Marvel actors don't know which Spider Man movie they're in, Hope Davis just shows up. Exactly. They're just like Justin Kirk. While we have you, yeah, you're great. <laughs> just do this now in yeah. a different suit. Um, here's the thing I wanted to ask you about this most recent. And we can. I there's not really a ton to spoil about no. Perry Mason as yet. We're if, through five episodes now, right? Yeah. Uh, the thing that happened in the fifth episode mm-hmm. is the really, really amazing piece of craftsmanship mm. that I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Converting B-plot to A-plot. Mm. So essentially, these, you could call it busy work. You could call it, you know, give this person a lot, like a storyline or whatever. A lot of shows just do that and then that's that's to take up innings, right? Like giving Juliet Rylance like her love affair yep. that's, that's happening. And you're like, okay, well, that's great. We get to know more about her. Mm-hmm. She, her her ca- character who has been kind of this like white knight in this show and is morally like sort of like you know spotless is now doing something with some some ambiguity and some yeah, regret. And Chris Chalk's character is getting the same same thing opportunity. But you could say like, oh, it, they're just kind of like stretching mm-hmm. their their arm here and like they're, I don't really know where this is going. And then in this episode, it becomes quite obvious that both of those plot lines are going to have a direct impact yeah. on the Gallardo case that's being tried and on Perry and on everything. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that the way that they fashioned that was like, this was the exact right episode to do that. Yeah. Because in the previous episode, I was like, this Della thing is just great. I love these two, you know, but what what the hell are we doing? You well, know? I mean, other than <laughs> showcasing the insane production budget this show has where they just go to a Palm Springs mansion for two scenes. Yes. I think this show is exceptionally well-crafted. It's exceptionally well-entertained. And and I don't mind as a either an experienced TV viewer or someone who's usually dining on the, the richest ingredients. I'm like, I don't mind the scene where the three characters are walking down Olvera Street, which has been dressed to look like the 1930s. I don't and mind it either. Every, and Juliet Rylance and Chris Chalk, who are great, great, great actors, their job in that scene is to be like, 
oh yeah? Like that's what they do it at work that day. Yeah. It's just kind of the engine of TV, but it's humming. It's humming, you know? And, and I, I think what, the other thing that you're responding to is a lot of the shows that are, you know, auteurist fits of fancy or flights of genius, so I'm mixing up the metaphors, you can feel incredible inspiration, but not necessarily tied into the workmanlike production of a television show. And for whatever happened behind the scenes during the making of this season of Perry Mason, it does feel like everything was integrated into a whole. That mm-hmm. there was a plan, and they're enacting the plan. And I know that that you know nothing goes that smoothly. There are probably people who are flown in and triage, and things were stitched together in editing, whatever. But that's TV, and it works. Yeah, I, I, I made the very strange choice on my uh, Trans-Pacific flight to eat a gourmet meal to watch the film The Menu. Oh, interesting. And had you seen that before? I had not seen it. And I wish I had just an hour with you. I'd love to just hear what you have to say. We should do a podcast maybe (laughs) once or twice a week. I'll see if Kai is free. She's pretty busy with AM to the PM. Just just fielding a lot of customer complaints. (laughs) Yeah, about the UX with that podcast, which doesn't exist. Um, But Uh, Perry Mason is the cheeseburger made from the ingredients that were lying around the gourmet kitchen. It it doesn't speak well for what happens after the cheeseburgers. I'm going to take it to go and worry about the problems later. But I do think it's worth championing this show because, I mean, against like Catherine Waterston playing the romantic lead to the main character, she's so much better than this and she's so great at it. So when she shows up, I'm not like, oh God, B story. I'm like, this is fun. This is exciting. Look at the costumes. Look at the set that they built for her apartment. Look at the fun she's having in the scene. You know, this is not talking about an Apatow movie to be like in the scene in episode five where she kicks the door closed behind Perry who's taking off his clothes. You can feel that when whoever directed that episode, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, yet said cut, they were probably laughing. Yeah. They're having a good time making the show. That matters. And what's strange to me is I don't know if this fits into HBO's mandate. Maybe the HBO Max mandate, but this is an HBO show. It's incredibly expensive. It's on Monday nights. And in a more balanced world where you could redraft shows to would different you networks. The, you, would, you would say, well, I mean, in a, you know, Casey Boys came on this show and like, yeah. it's not like this is an accident, right? Yes. They decided probably that they didn't want this to be paired with succession, but I think it, in the like sort of back-to-back sense. But they've obviously... They've got some eyes on the the service right now. You know what I mean? Like so yes. the Sunday Monday thing, which is not uncommon. Like that I think that we own the city did that, like Night of did that. Like they've done this before. Yeah. Maybe that's a good night they've found for some of their more Maybe. like harder genre stuff. Maybe. I, I don't know what the numbers are for this show. Maybe that Justin Kirk has it contractually that like he wants his stuff spread out across two days. That's right. Can we put into the universe that Justin Kirk needs to come on this tel- this podcast? I feel like he would come on the... I've been a fan of his since Angels in America anyway, but... He's great. uh, The scene in this episode where he goes back to Mason and offers the deal that he had rejected. Yeah. uh, There's a lot going on there. Like, he is, he is like... Maybe it's just like he knows exactly how to play the roles that he chooses or gets hired to do. But Berger being like... I can't tip my hand as to Mm -hmm. why I'm offering you this deal, but I also can't be too aggressive in pushing back against your counter. You know what I mean? And the the Milligan, the other DA, is just like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, I just want to put these guys in nooses. Like, let's go. Like, Every scene has a lot of thought and care and professionalism brought to it. I want to shout out 
um, great director, Jessica Lowry, friend of mine who did episodes three and four. And she did such a beautiful job with those episodes, but also she got to go to Santa Anita, right? Mm. And the the way that they shoot a fucking racetrack with the horses that survived yeah, luck. At night, yeah. It, it's Horses it's, do some of their best work at night, though. Is that is that your personal experience? Or is that just what... <laughs> Is that just what Mr. Milch told you? Um, I, and then Dave, she, let me shoot this at night. If Shea Wiggum, like, look what they get to play with. I just, it's weird to say that a show that probably costs, I can't even imagine how much it costs, Daisy Jones money. Uh, you should, don't, don't pocket watch. Let these guys, let these tech I, companies burn through their... I don't mind them spending the money on Perry Mason. I just feel like it seems like it's being overlooked in the conversation when this is actually them making a show that everybody could find a way into. It's yeah. very entertaining. Like in episode five, does a character turn to his wife and say, am I a bad man? And did did I break out in hives? Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not expecting poetry. I'm just expecting a really good pulp. And I also, it's delivering I, on it. I also love the double mystery where the first mystery is actually not a mystery at all. Yeah. And then the second mystery is the conspiracy that we still are like, damn, why is this lady in a wheelchair? And like, what did Brooks do? And you know, his dad seems like an asshole. Like, let's get this conspiracy going. <laughs> is, was that your read that maybe his dad seems like an asshole? <laughs> like a pretty big type asshole. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's uh, a really good show that I really enjoy watching. And I just feel like that is notable since a lot of the shows we talk about are either like upper echelon, like God tier succession stuff or noble things that are worthwhile that we're interested in. You know, like let's, let's pivot. Uh, let's just talk about let, let's just let's just right down the middle. Okay. Let's be like Aaron Nola with a pitch clock. Just groove everything. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? He's loving life. We'll just do fast, fast stuff straight down the middle. I love that MLB is like, this pitch clock is fucking awesome. Like they're yeah. making ads about the pitch clock. Yeah. And then when like you actually watch your team and the pitcher's getting tattooed all over the place. Yeah. And they're like, my life is over. Yeah. I'm like, I'm glad I secured the bag before I had this mental but breakdown. I was like, nobody checked into how Aaron Nola fucking tries pickoffs like every other pitch so that he can like grind the game into dust. Also, also what about like, how do you feel for the beer vendors? Who used to be get like like three hours of just getting people sauce? Can I tell you no. my my Dodgers story? I went and saw Dodgers Diamondbacks. Yeah, uh, and because you've been a Diamondbacks fan since the Randy <laughs> Johnson days, Kirk Gibson really speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to that game, and uh, we were like we were there a little early, so then we we're like, let's get some dogs, you know, let's get some yeah. some treats. Got up. Uh, I personally stopped. I don't know where my wife was. She was like getting a margarita or something, but I like stopped for the national anthem. Well, salute you, the flag. Yeah. I mean, that's who you are. Terminalist style. And then uh, <laughs> um, as I got in this very long line yeah. to get a plant-based Dodger dog, Whoa, which that- I think is just like, if you're going to do Dodger Stadium, I understand. Like personally, I, I don't mind plant-based meats. This is, this is, by the way, this is why they can't pin you down. This, this is why Steve Bannon so cannot long, get a line Andy. on you. Yeah. And you know what I heard? Yeah. The roar of the crowd as Trace Thompson hit a grand slam in the bottom of the first inning. It was my fault for not sitting in my seat. Right. And then I watched two hours of Clayton Kershaw dealing, but okay. there was no other action. I have to say though, couldn't take my eyes off the field. Too much action. It was great. It's too much action. Rob for Manfred. You. Ma- Rob Manfred and Jeff Bezos, my two number one guys, 2023. Because they just they answer to the people, right? I mean, this, this is wow. Uh, I can't keep up. Okay. 
this is, I am Aaron Nola, honestly. <laughs> like, I just, I went away. Yeah, you're still going to first. I'm like, miss, that's a penalty I now. miss spring training. I'm just, just throwing pepper around the infield. I got to kick you out of the studio. I got to do this Sonny and Jake interview, and I can't wait to do it. But I, I love tell. seeing you back here, and we're going to yeah. be back on Monday morning. Thanks for having me as a guest on The Watch. No, I don't want to blow all our takes anyway. Monday morning, we're going to come back. Monday morning is going to be interesting. And you then and, Thursday, you want to do Daisy again? You and Kai are going to be lit, apparently. And you two, both of you two on the other side of the table, you know what you're in for? Yeah. An absolute fucking classic Top Chef. Wow. Because you haven't watched it yet, but it is a banger. Okay, so we have a lot to catch up on now that I'm ready to catch up. Yep. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I think that's fine. No <laughs> pitch clock on the podcast. No more banter. No more digressions. You were like, I what's your heart out? I was like 11. <laughs> I just like to hang out with my pals. Uh, Jake and Sonny coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Okay, we're about to get into my interview with Sonny Lee and Jake Schreier. Uh, Sonny is the creator of and the writer, largely the writer of Beef, and Jake directed six of the ten episodes. Uh, Jake Schreier, you might know, uh, he directed uh, Paper Towns several years ago as a feature and then has done some great work on TV since then, especially on Lodge 49. Sonny is a TV veteran. He's worked on Tuca and Birdie, on Two Broke Girls, on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And this is just a really, really interesting show. It's not unlike... A 90s from hell thriller meets a Coen Brothers black comedy meets a treatise on class meets a nearly psychedelic uh, one-on-one battle between these two very, very screwed up people. Those people are played by Steven Yun and Ali Wong who give powerhouse performances at the center of beef. It's a really interesting show. It's about 10, it is 10 episodes. I don't think it's about 10 episodes. And uh, each episode's around half an hour. So I highly encourage you to check it out. And I really enjoyed my chat with Sonny and Jake. So let's get into it. Sonny, Jake, thank you so much for joining me. I love the show. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. But Sonny, I know that uh, I've read already the sort of origin story for the show and the incident. But I thought for our listeners, we could we could talk through it. This road rage incident that's mm-hmm. kind of like the, the Proustian moment for, for you here. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it was similar to the show in the sense that there was a white SUV involved. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a BMW, though, okay. uh, not, a, not a Benz. And uh, I was coming home from work. It was in Hollywood, getting on the 10. And, uh, you know, I'm on my phone. Uh, it was my fault. And <laughs> light turns green and didn't go right away. He starts, like, honking like crazy, pulls over to the side, rolls down his window, starts just cursing at me. And uh, drives off. And, you know, I wasn't having a particularly bad day, but on that day, for some reason, I was just like, eh, I'm going to follow you. (laughs) (laughs) And I really didn't have a plan, but, uh, you know, I think I justified it in my mind. Like, I'm just going to commute home. Yeah. And if he happens to be in front of me and feeling a little scared, great. Yeah. But that day, we were going the exact same direction for for miles, like all the way to 4th Street. In you know Santa Monica, like through forty five minutes of traffic, and so I'm sure in his head he was like, 
oh, this maniac is following me through all of Los Angeles. And so that kind of made me chuckle. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and did you like make a voice note about it or like did it immediately start to germinate with you as like a something that could be a story? Well, it ended in... Um, I've been advised not to tell the full, but uh, <laughs> I think it's fun enough to share. Uh, where, it, he, by like your, your lawyers? <laughs> no, it's just like I, I know it makes me come across a certain way. Like I'm like, you know, like the the characters in our show do some like horrible things, and so I don't want to condone this behavior. But you know, like we got off Fourth Street, and um, and he's like trying to like lose me and I'm like, well, I'm pot committed now. So, yeah. uh, and he stopped in the middle of the street and started, you know, he was on the phone. He gets out of his car. He's on the, he's on the phone with the police and he's trying to get my license plate, but I don't have one on the front because okay. I find it aesthetically displeasing. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, um, and so what You're I did was I, great. I rolled, yeah, this well. is perfect. Yeah. Uh, am I, is my phone blowing up? <laughs> um, is that the FBI? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I rolled down the window and I put on sunglasses and I like pointed two fingers towards my eyes and then at him, oh which God, I've never dude. done before in my Clint life. Clint Eastwood, what's happening? Yeah, it was weird. And and then I reversed out of there like so fast and smooth. And and uh, the reason I'm sharing the full story is because you know I, I left there feeling quite alive. Yeah, you know I was like that was awesome. And I told that story to every single person that would hear me for like the next like two months. And so that's when I knew that there was something there was just like, I, I couldn't stop like talking about how like great that felt, right. you know? And, um, you know, a couple people are like, you okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's that's what really sparked it. And, and one of those people that I told that story to was Ravi Nandan at A24, who I had known for many years and we hadn't caught up in a minute. And I was just like talking to him about the story and like how so we were also like trapped in our subjective views of reality. And uh, he's like, you should explore that. Yeah. There's some, there's something there. And it really was his encouragement that um, made me dive in further. I don't want to turn this episode into the SNL skit, The Californians, where we just talk about different <laughs> streets in California, but I'm going to do that for a second. I have a theory that I want to bounce off you guys. That there was that moment right after like peak pandemic when restaurants started kind of like doing to go and stuff like that. And that is what broke reality for me with Los Angeles traffic because for a brief moment, mm -hmm. I saw what could be. <laughs> and I saw the version of LA that's like in the Joan Didion White album where she's like, I went from Franklin Hills to Santa Monica in nine <laughs> minutes. And I was like, what? Yeah. And this is now like, now that we're all back out in the streets and stuff, I can't do it. No, I like every single time when I'm on stuck on Santa Monica or wherever I am, like there's some like edge to it that is now it's different than it was before. Before it was 100%. just like, this is mind numbing. I'm listening to a podcast, but I got to go to work. And now I'm like, no, I know it only takes nine minutes to get to Pasadena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people these, tasted freedom. Everybody here is just. And wasn't there data that like there were even more, despite there being no traffic, there were like car accidents were up. Oh, like oh yeah, because well, people were doing like 103 miles per hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people were like, they tasted that freedom, and now they're like, because oh. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I I think that checks out because people people seem much angrier, you know, once things open back up. Do you think that this is a story? Let's just say that this is like. Do you think that this is like almost weirdly a post-pandemic story? That there's something about everything that's happened over the last few years, maybe even the last six or seven years with like 
the real invasive nature of social media and the way it's changed? Because I have a follow-up question to this, but I was curious whether you felt like this is an era-specific story for you. I've been seeing reactions online that say that, and um, it certainly wasn't by design uh, intentionally, right. you know, uh, but it probably is because, you know, everyone involved, we we were just trying to write something honest to how we all feel right now. And, and you know, we all exist in a post-pandemic world. And so I think we we must have been tapping into something that's in the air and, and, and that's coming across. But um, yeah, but, but I will say that I think even pre-pandemic, uh, it's not like these things didn't exist. Yeah. It, um, it, it's just everything's kind of cranked up um, to 11 now. You know, Jake, I was watching... I've been watching Perry Mason this season. We, Andy and I were just talking about how much we love this season. And one of the things that's cool about it is because of the era it's set in, I think a lot of the um, scene mechanics where it's like, this person has to go across the street to go talk to somebody uh, actually makes sense in the the era that it's being set. Whereas like, say like there are episodes of like Ozark where it's like, you didn't really have to drive around the <laughs> lake to talk to this guy. Like you could have just texted him or whatever. Yeah. One of the things I love, and you directed six episodes, correct, of yep. the season. One of the things I love about Beef is the integration of all the like tech, whether it's like next door or DMs or ring cameras and all this stuff. How do you bring that stuff to life filmmaking wise? Because this is that's probably like last four years of reality, you know, like 2017, 2010. I don't think it's the same as 2023 or 22. Yeah, it's definitely made things a lot harder. I mean, Sonny and I talked about that obsessively like throughout. And we never even really committed to an approach as we shot. Like we would always get, I think from the beginning, I was like, there's so many texts in this show that we're going to have to do the overlay thing. Yeah. And Sonny was a little hesitant. <laughs> yeah, which, because like, maybe that looks cheesy, but you Did know. you want to VO it or? I, I wanted everything to be practical. I didn't want any overlays. Yeah. Uh, just because... I was worried it would take you out of the reality of the moment. Uh, but, you know, then this guy shoots really beautiful, like, <laughs> camera movement things. And you're like, I don't want to fuck with, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to interrupt this, like, nice pull or push with, like, some, like, insert into a phone. That's horrible. <laughs> and so... You're I, stuck, because I agree. Like, yeah. I don't, in theory, want to use overlays. Like, as a, like, I would probably default to what Sunny defaults to. But in the end, if you're not is there anything that great about an insert shot of a phone? But we shot an insert of the phone for every single text just in, in the show, just in case. In okay. the edit. And sometimes we do that. Like, Sonny would kind of modulate and post, like, when it felt, ah, right here. Like, I just want to see it on the phone. I want to know that it's real versus, like, a longer conversation where we don't want to interrupt the wide. See, that's the that was the other thing that felt very much, like, post-2020 to me was, especially living out here, you know, it's like, I just realized that like I can't get my phone out of my hand at all mm-hmm. anymore, you know. Um, and that that has become like if there is ever a break in a basketball game, I'm looking at my phone, even if it's just like the totally. second quarter. I'm like, I'm just gonna look at my phone while this is happening. And it's it's kind of amazing how in beef, you know, th- like I think Danny has like a little bit of a sort of different relationship to his phone than in, than <laughs> Amy does. But one of the things I thought was, must be challenging in making it was a majority of this series, Amy and Danny are not in the same place, right? But they are locked in a cage together psychologically. And the way that they are is usually through these various forms of communication, which is not so much of a question as it is like, a, how did you guys talk about that? What was that something that you were sort of aware of that this is, 
in some ways a two-hander where the two hands are only together for what, like 20% of the show, right? Yeah. Um, that was a that was a lot of the writer's room uh, time was was just discussing really the core progression of the season, you yeah. know? Like uh, this analogy that we like to come up with in the room was, you know, the various, there's only like six pleasing core progressions to the modern ear, <laughs> yeah, it's you like know? It's like DAG, go, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and uh, funny enough, machine learning algorithm that was fed like thousands of pieces of, our, of like human literature uh, found that there's only six ways that we tell stories. Huh. And they're all different versions of rises and falls. And so you have this standard chord progression like G, E minor, C, D, G, which is when you break it down, G is a status quo, E minor is a fall, C, D is a rise, back to your status quo G. Right. And that is literally like hero's journey, three-act structure that right. we're obsessed with. And so, but that's like a, you know, standard top 40 hit. How do you make something that's, not, I'm not saying we made the Beatles, but like how did the Beatles do it? Sure. It's like you fuck with that chord progression. And so... Then you, instead of that, you do G, E minor, G, E minor, G, E minor, and create that longing and only give the audience C, D, G at the very end. Right. And so that's kind of what we're doing with the Danny Amy. Like, I know when they're in a scene together, it's electric, but why constantly do C, D, G over and over? Create a little bit of tension, a little bit of longing for that with going back and forth without giving the audience what they want. Yeah. So that was a lot of the writing, but then I think in post we found that like, oh, there's some times where you you kind of at least want to keep them somehow connected, even though they're not in the same space. Yeah, so, it's like a proxy war between them. You know yeah. what I mean? Because like they're sending out their kind of different emissaries and they're doing all this like espionage against one another. Well, but th there is those meeting points. Yeah, and, and there's all these like kind of really subtle pieces in the writing that's so fun as a filmmaker because you can, you know, like on a filmmaking level, we would try, especially in like like episode two, like there's a whole sequence where we're constantly like balancing their eye lines across space, even though they're not looking at each other, which is sort of like theoretically drawing them together oh, by the end of the episode. Awesome. So it's always like, I mean, I thought it was going to be very obvious and then no one notices yeah, it. No one, except for <laughs> one person on YouTube noticed it. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. But yeah, like in the in the gallery and the club, like they're always looking, they're kind of like matched frames across space. And we would try to like always like really frame. We did a lot of like unbalanced coverage so that normally like in a dialogue scene, like classic approach is like whatever distance you are from one character, you should be from the other character. Okay. It's what cuts the easiest. For this show, like we would always be closer to Amy and Danny than we were to whoever was their opposite within the scene. So the camera's like always subtly closer to them in a way that you start to feel like they're, I mean, ideally, if anyone, whether you notice or not, ideally, you start to feel their subjectivity and feel how kind of connected they are in the way they're being filmed That's versus so awesome. anyone else. That's so cool. I love when I hear stuff like that because obviously, like, I'm watching this stuff you know, pr primarily as like an emotional reaction and then like an intellectual reaction to like the thematic content of the show. And then on a sort of more deeper level, I do think that there are filmmaking decisions that get made like that. And it, hearing you say that, I'm like, you never escape either of those two characters POV. Like everybody else actually mm -hmm. feels a little bit at an arm's distance throughout the show. And it's only over the course of the series or season that you start to learn more about these people who maybe like in the first two episodes seem like caricatures, you know what I mean? That then yeah. become these much deeper people. So I guess that segues well into this sort of thing I wanted to ask you about, which is the show starts on such an intense note, right? Like that first episode is like your, your adrenaline is going watching this whole sequence take place. 
And then your jobs as filmmakers and as storytellers is to core progression to your point, but also like how much gas, how much break, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about pacing for a 10 episode, but 30 minute season and when to drop the like, the big moments, when to kind of expand character, when to when to bring in set pieces and things like that. Yeah, it's 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 tough, <laughs> uh, especially um, in sort of the the modern algorithm. You know, like yeah. uh, we it, when we took out the show, it, we we had a bidding war and multiple different streamers, but we ultimately knew we wanted to be at Netflix because it's like you know, in terms of like scale and like the way we consume things, Netflix kind of defines a lot of like modern habits, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so a lot of the, our initial pitch even was designed to, to, to ride the line between like being like, I don't know, artful in your writing, but also you're, you're making it for a modern audience, yeah. you know? And so there's a lot of conversations about where is that bullseye? Like, like, are we, is this too much propulsion over and over again? Like, should we slow it down? And, you know, who's to say, I don't know if we like nailed it all the time, but it was a constant discussion. Well, like, I'm always fascinated by like how much of the whiteboard gets used up in the first episode or like, you know, it's like how much of your, of your notebook is getting emptied? How early? Well, Sonny actually has a graph. I mean, Sonny, really? he calls it story math, but I mean, like, if you looked at the pitch for Beef, like, there is an actual graph <laughs> of each of their character rises and falls that was pretty well hewed to. I mean, obviously, things shift in the writer's room and in production, but, like, the overall concept of it is on that graph. Yeah, there's we do a lot of graphs, a lot of spreadsheets with, like, <laughs> columns for each person's arc, like, interpersonal arcs, and then I have a, <laughs> a column that's audience emotion, and Interesting. We, we do a fun thing in the room where we kind of like pretend to be different viewers. And okay. Almost like your lizard brain, uh, <laughs> like like just like base level reaction to things. And and if you do, if you have that spreadsheet and you look at that column, you're like, oh shit, uh, we have like ten consecutive beats where it's just like just pure adrenaline. That's probably not good. Like yeah. we're gonna like wipe people out. So then like. Then we go back and we're like, well, what if like you have a, a still a stiller moment here and you actually build that and then you do the adrenaline that'll actually make the adrenaline pop even harder without having to exert so much effort because, you know, like stillness before, you know. Something. So you're your own focus group. Uh, we do a lot of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did you participate in this? Uh, I mean, I wasn't in the writer's room. I saw the graph and then, you know, I think everyone, I mean, we had a really great group of, you know, their beats of like even... I can't spoil, but some of like the ways things are done in episode nine, like Larkin, our cinematographer, yeah. who's brilliant, like had really good story notes too. And yeah. like, like when you have like good scripts that everyone gets very excited about, like Grace Yoon, our production designer, like people do bring a lot of themselves. And you know, like with a good writer who is willing to listen to that, like when when Sunny's pushed, like it usually can get him to an even better place of of how to work that in. I mean, I don't think that that's odd, that odd. I remember. I mean, every all writers have their systems, right? Mm-hmm. Like some people have index cards, and David Lynch is like, I just do scene on an index card, and when I have sixty of those, the movie's done, you know. And like <laughs> Stanley Kubrick had like the card catalogs and stuff like that, and like it's not surprising to me that we're using these like suite of of office tools, essentially, like or Microsoft, you know, like these basically like these computer programs to kind of illustrate narrative ideas. I mean, it's not all like I have right longhand in a 
yeah. notebook and then send it off to the typist. Well, and especially when, you know, we shot this show, we cross-boarded it. So it's entirely out of sequence. Like, we didn't go episode by episode. Oh, like, okay. We did the whole season except for the last episode that Sonny directed, which happened at the end. Like, everything else is done all across the map. And so to have not just scripts, you know, but also, like, this kind of story math of where are we and what what is this, not only like what's happening in the scene, which you can tell from the sides, but where in the story is this and what is it propelling you to? Mm-hmm. You know, to have like checkpoints for that, like actually written down in a somewhat more mathematical fashion can be a lifesaver. So you've got this story, you've obviously got like a very precise way of planning it out and planning out the beats to it. Do the casting and I know that you sort of wrote with an idea of who is going to be in the show in the first place but do Allie and Steven act as uh like unstable chemicals with all this planning or <laughs> are they are they part of like the sort of equation that goes into like the final thing if that makes sense oh they're very much a part of the equation I think that was one of the joys of having them on so early as EPs but even before we took out the pitch was you know I could you know I'm creating this PowerPoint presentation and I'm like stuck on like a character beat and I can just text Steven at like 1.30 in the morning. He's usually up. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, uh, what do you think about this? And then he'll call me and we'll talk for like an hour and fix it right there. And I mean, their fingerprints are all over everything, not even, not just their characters. And so that was very helpful. And, um, you know, there were countless times, there's this one story that that's pretty fun of in episode seven, and I don't think this spoils anything, uh, that uh, he returns from a party to find his brother in his apartment mm-hmm. going over the accounting of the business. Yeah. And, um, you know, Jake was setting up rehearsing and Stephen was like, I don't know why I would say the back half of this scene. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so, like, brought it over to me and I was like, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, um, give me a second, please. Uh, I'll try to fix it. And then Jake was like, all right, uh, let's move on to something else. And then everyone's scrambling. Right, I, 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 I wasn't even that great. I was like, it works, it works. No one will notice. Let's just shoot the scene. Yeah, that's true. You were, we're like, <laughs> pay no attention to that. Um, and I couldn't fix it. And I was like, I'm so sorry, everybody, but I think we have to call it. Because uh, it was like, uh, we, you know, we think, I think we spent like three or four more hours in the day. And so it felt like a huge defeat at yeah. the time. And I went back to my office, just kind of pretty depressed, uh, being feeling like I'd let everyone down. But then I started rewriting the scene. And not only was Steven 100% right, like it, it broke, it, it allowed me to like re break some of the pieces at the end where we landed somewhere really, really good. And, he just has such an incredible knack for like this, like I don't know, truth radar. Yeah, and uh, anything at all false, he'll call out. Um, and so, you know, thanks to him, uh, we we redid that scene, and it's one of my favorite scenes in that episode. He's uh, I I don't like try, I try not to be like super hyperbolic about this. I can only imagine what it's like to look through the monitor when he's doing what he's doing in this show, but like. Is he fucking Serpico? Like what's like he's like <laughs> like the the iceberg there where you're like I can see what you're doing and then there's so much more behind your eyes and in your like gestures and this guy is carrying around so much pain and so much anger and yet that doesn't have to be said you know you just know it the second you see him I and what's it like on set? Yeah, I mean it's what Sonny said. He just refuses to be false, you know, and yeah. so it's just a kind of I think like. As a director, you know, and especially like doing the kind of filmmaking that we both love where, you know, it's a little more like 
precise and planned and you have to hit marks and you have to do some of those things, you know, but then what you also want as an actor, it's like, I can hit those marks. You know, like when we had that conversation, it was like, oh, you want me to hit some beats? I I can hit beats. (laughs) Like, okay, all right. But in between that, like, he's not going to just, you're not going to get the same thing every time and he's going to bring something that you never would have expected to it. And so if you can marry those two things, like precision with this level of kind of commitment and truth and reality that isn't, because you don't actually want, I mean, I don't know, Sonny maybe feels differently. Like, I think you don't want what's just in your head. Like, you have a vision of the thing going in, but it's not. That's fascinating. I mean, like, I'm fascinated by the idea of, like, you must have had, you must be a very protective father when it comes to this, but then there's also, like, the light's wrong, or today the, you yes. know, the, this didn't show up or whatever, and letting that be whatever it's going to be. Yeah, I think it's a balance between both. And and that that's what's great about the squad that we had on this is I am pretty particular about what's in my head, but then everyone's there's so much magic and in, in also like executing and new things being discovered. And st- what Steven does really well too, he's on like some like Michael Jordan Kobe shit <laughs> where like in the scene, so he's doing all of that, everything you're saying. But then he can also be guiding the other performer towards the thing that he knows that the scene needs to be. So we're just sitting at the monitor being like, are you watching this? Like he's literally like... (laughs) Like guiding other performances to. Do you be, mean like emotionally, like kind of like just just sort of egging this person towards whatever? Yeah, is it from them emotionally, even like slightly, t- like tweaking the dialogue in the moment to to kind of nudge a reaction, a more of a reaction from the from his scene partner. Is there a scene in particular that you're thinking of? Oh, I mean, like I'd say a lot of scenes with with Young, okay, who plays Paul. Um, also, a lot of scenes with uh, Rec and Santino, um, yes. Bobby and Michael, because they're so comedic. And I'm, you know, I don't want to detract from them as performers either, because they're incredible. But you know, especially with Rec and Santino, they're coming in just for like kind of like the middle part of the the show. And you know, like Jake said, it's so heavily cross boarded. They may not know like what this means for like the whole season arc. Yeah. And just constantly in those scenes, Steven's like, you know, they're they're fairly comedic, but then he's like nudging them towards like, you know, so that the scene ultimately is about Danny feeling aggrieved or not seen or about like, you know, really like bringing out the the Isaac factor of the scene a little bit more. I mean, it's it's really, and I asked Steven, I was like, are you consciously yeah. doing that? And he was like, not really, but like in hindsight, he says he he can see it right, but that that is after like after he's like looking at his highlight yeah. tapes. He's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think it's just like intuitive for him in the same way, like you know, all star basketball players just like, in, like they're not like consciously like like the A to B to C leading like you know the flow of the game, but they just intuitively know the flow of the game yeah. so well, right? You know, there's like the Chris Pauls who are like, I know exactly where to give you the ball, yeah, and yeah. then there are the guys who are like more like somehow I just knew that I was going to pocket pass to you, and yes. then, then everything popped off. Yeah, one of the things that we do not on not only on this pod but on Big Pick and and a couple of the things that we do here is we're constantly having this kind of conversation about the the push and pull of like what's a movie and what's a TV show and was this written as a feature and then changed into a TV show or was this a feature that should have been a, a TV show because it could have been expanded. And I was going to ask you a pretty boilerplate question about influences going into this, both filmmaking-wise and tonally. 
but I thought we could have a broader conversation about, I mean, was this always going to be a series in your mind? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And is it a series that was shot in any way differently than you would have shot, say, a feature? Well, it would have been nice to have a little more time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, less page count every day. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, you know, that's really the only thing is that just for whatever reason, the way kind of tradition and economics have worked out, like series are expected to be shot much faster than features are, which is not not for any real reason or content. You know, like I I think though that, again, we're very lucky with, I mean, Larkin is incredible and incredibly fast and Grace. Grace's design, Helen's costumes. Like there are there are definitely there's a lot of the show that I am as proud of as I could imagine being as proud of of mm-hmm. a feature. It's just maybe not like, you know, I think both of us feel like if I know. had another hour <laughs> or if I had another day on something. Yeah, a few more days. I mean, the, the, the show would not exist without the the Jake Larkin combo. They're the fastest alive, <laughs> but like still operating at such a high level. I mean, there was one day when we were shooting at uh Veronica's house, you know, the Orange County yeah. house. Uh, that was like a eight-page day, I want to say. Something like that. Which, like, look, other shows do that, you know, but, like, we're trying to do it on a level where, like, it feels like more purposeful filmmaking. And then, you know, what you also need is you need a showrunner who, you know, like, the way that I shoot, you know, you're not getting a lot of options in the edit because it has to, like, you have to commit. <laughs> yeah. that, like, the trade-off for the time is, like, okay. You, you basically shoot. In, you're cutting in camera. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we can do good shots, but these these are the shots. Like, are you good with it? And Sonny and I would talk a lot at the monitor, and I'd try to make sure he was cognizant of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every now in the edit, he'd be like, "Where's this?" And I'm like, "Do you remember how much we had to do?" <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Oh yeah, no, all right, sorry." <laughs> I guess I, I asked this question because you're wearing a letterbox hat. I'm sure like you're like a huge filmmaking fan, and there are parts of it where I, you know, like the Santino the duo that comes in as like these kinds of like it, that's very like to me like very raising Arizona mm-hmm. and it's kind of got like this this got this great black comedy energy throughout it which is I think a genre that movies have largely stepped away from you yeah. know I think it's been hard for films to be like comedies alone are too difficult to release much less black comedies yeah um I was I was just wondering what how difficult it is to synthesize cinematic influences or maybe conversations that you guys may have had about like movies or stories that you think uh, pertain to this one and then translate into we got to do eight pages a day or, or however many pages a day. Yeah, there were a lot of early conversations with Jake where I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, you know, punch drunk love and like Fargo. Ah, like we got to... We gotta be on that level. <laughs> the, the, Jake's like, um, cool. do you know how many pages they shot today? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not fair. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, you ever seen Lords of Arabia? You know, like, yeah. yeah, I just want a little bit of that. And they're like, oh, sure. Like, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, it's almost like weird to talk about the references because it's hard not to sound pretend. You know, it's like, yeah, we. we I know certainly... we do this whole thing where it's called director bullshit, where it's like somebody is making, <laughs> you know, like whether it's a Star Wars or a Marvel or a DC thing, but they're like, but it's actually like the conformist, and we're like. Oh, you know, like, but yeah. I love it though. Like, it's still the lifeblood of it. But I think, like, honestly, like, we really didn't. And maybe it's just because I tend to not really like to direct from reference. Like, yeah. we we talk, Sonny and I. I mean, we've been friends for years, and we talk about those movies even when we're not making a show. And I mean, we obviously love PTA and Punch Drunk and Spike. You know, we talked a lot about like the PTA Spike divide of like how LA is shot and mm-hmm. how it's seen. Mm-hmm. You know, but when it actually comes time to make it. Like, we don't have those references on set. Sure. We don't really end up talking about it in that way. It's like you kind of form a unit between Larkin and Grace and Sonny and I of, like, what what our language is. Like, you kind of figure it out as you go, and then, like, that really becomes 
your language because it's just too weird to be stepping outside of that or holding it up to something like yeah looking at a laptop on set of something yeah of course made, you know and again we we just really didn't have time to even <laughs> talk about anything <laughs> we were just like go 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 um and and so yeah it's uh it's like you consume all this before you make it and and it's probably like rattling around subconsciously yeah. and 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 bleeding out in different ways but certainly while making it you know you're just kind of responding to the the character and and the environment in some ways, the genre or maybe the reference that I love the most is that this is such a distinct like Los Angeles show, but like a greater Los Angeles show. <laughs> uh, like, I do want to bring up I did because I know that I always wanted to be on one of the Heat recap podcasts. <laughs> so I had at some point midway through the show, I started telling Stephen that we were making dumb Heat, and I even <laughs> he made a little meme. I made a little poster. Yeah, he photoshopped <laughs> their faces onto the. What's the poster. coffee shop? Kate Mandolini's is that the Mandolini's? One? It's not there anymore. Yeah, I know. Like, you guys should have just rebuilt it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, um, but there's this awesome thing where it's like you know a lot of all the, a lot of the Amy stuff's Calabasas, and then um, Danny's stuff is in these like various. Where where is like that actually? His stuff set in the show. In the show. In the show, it's set in Reseda. Okay. And then, um, his I think we shot. A lot in like Chatsworth and Canoga Park. Okay. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I'm a transplant. I don't really spend a lot of time in Calabasas or Reseda. And it's, but it's, but it's awesome because like you drive around the city and you, you'll like go past an exit and you're like, the person who lives off this exit thinks where I live is like fucking nowheresville and like never goes there. It's like so <laughs> funny how when you talk to people in Los Angeles, like Kaya and I worked together for years. She lives on the west side. I live on the east side. She's come to the east side like three times <laughs> in the time that I've known her. And it's like, it's just such a weird canvas to paint on because you can make it any reality that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, largely it was because I, I had just moved to Calabasas uh, when, <laughs> when I yeah, started. Amy's house is actually four houses down from Sunny's house. Yeah, the, <laughs> the first day of shooting... <laughs> Uh, we shot, it was the 105 cold open with the bike bicycling, yeah. and um, that was the street right behind mine. So I just like woke up, walked out of my house, and I was like, I could get used to this. <laughs> this is pretty nice. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, at the, you know, I, I, pre pandemic, I, I had just moved there, and you know, it's, I'm a first time homeowner and like going to Home Depot and uh, buying supplies all the time. and just it, it's that Home Depot in West Hills is such a interesting kind of melting pot because you have people coming from Hidden Hills, from Calabasas, but also like Reseda Chatsworth. Yeah. It's just so many different, you know, socioeconomic statuses, all like my, you know, coming to one spot to build things for homes that, you know, and it just, it seemed rife with tension. Yeah. And, um, so that, that's really what, what sparked, um, the setting was, uh, it, it's, it was just what I was seeing every day. And did you want to shoot it in, in a different way than you had seen before? Maybe was there, was there elements that you wanted to avoid in the way you depicted California? It's a good question. Again, it's like the kind of thing I wish we had had time to, because yeah. I'm like, like he, he doesn't like the it. color green. So, well, that's true. I tried uh, to keep. Neither does California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of times in the grade where Jake would be like, "Just the green. Can we <laughs> just knock down the green, please?" <laughs> There's a. I don't know. I don't, that's just probably personal taste. But yeah, I think like yeah, just wanting to feel. And I, and again, I don't think it's. It's interesting to have seen, PTA's movies and then move like where you're like. 
you, you were aware of the sort of mythology of the valley, but I didn't know what the valley was or what it meant, like, until I moved here. And then you kind of get a sense of, like, what each of these places mean to yeah. the people and, like, how kind of... I think, like, when you grow up outside of L.A., you're like, you really just imagine, like, West Hollywood is Los Angeles. Like, that's the only kind of L.A. that you're mm-hmm. aware of. And you also think the whole place is kind of vapid and silly. And then you move here and you start to understand that, like, these places have real meaning. Like you said, like, they are these little enclaves. Well, they're distinct from one another almost entirely, yeah. Like, you could spend—I mean, I'm sure there are people who live in the valley who just like, oh, I don't go across the mountain, over, this, over the mountain at all, you know? So there yeah. were times—you know, like, our stages were in Chatsworth. We shot out there a lot. And there were times we were like— Man, are we really getting enough LA in the show? Because you know it's so hard to get yeah. to even shoot in LA. You know, well, that's why the Koreatown week was huge for us because it really like sells uh, LA. Just even seeing, you know, there's that one shot in two when Danny leaves uh, the club to yeah. get to his car, and you see the like Korean bakery sign in the background, and just gives it that little extra oomph. And uh, and we shot at Arena Club, which is like. <laughs> classic k-town yeah. club which i hear is not around it now like it went under like in the time that we oh really shot. <laughs> really yeah I, I could be speaking out of turn but <laughs> someone told me that last week um uh, i've always been disappointed speaking of heat that bj's on alvarado is is a fictional club you know oh <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i thought about that a lot like because when you're in k-town like that's sort of what it feels like but yeah, then it's down like hard two to... elevators through a metal detector i like... know but they use jump around in the club which is just like <laughs> oh like i love michael mann more than anything but, like, yeah it just kind but of he'll takes drop a little bit of a... song on you yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well thank you guys so much for coming in oh you know what i did want to ask one more thing i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and ask a little bit about the finale oh that's sure. okay yeah. so if you haven't watched uh so you may want to stop the interview now just because I wanted to talk a little bit about the conclusion. Not so super specific terms, but you said something about the court progression and this idea of release. I'm sort of thinking about like how you do the conclusion in CODA here. And the show itself kind of ends in like this amazing, both violent and psychedelic way. Mm. And for you, you know, obviously it starts at this very domestic kind of like everything is recognizable and then it keeps going on and on and the characters are pushed to these further and further extremes. Does that have, that? that's where you, got, were you like, this has to have like almost like a transcendental ending for these two characters for this to this story to wrap up? Yeah, I think just mood wise, it felt like slowing things down felt correct. And then, you know, uh, the episode nine title, The Great Fabricator. So all the titles, if you just, Google the title plus quote, it'll send you to the quote that uh, it's based on. Right. And that particular quote is about how attachments are are sort of the greatest fabricator because it, it's in order to really grow, you need to like detach from everything. And I think for these two characters, the only way to, for them to do that is to be trapped in the middle of nowhere. And so once we knew that that's the setting, it just naturally, the story wanted to be a little bit quieter and... You know, and truthfully, like, also, like, it's the end of production. We're running out of money. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> we're like, oh, like was, you stand on that rock, and you stand on that. Yeah. Rock. <laughs> uh, so there's a little bit of that, but I just th- like even that aside. I think even you, um, from a musical standpoint, instead of like, the audience is, I think, is ex- expecting something a little bit more bombastic, yeah. given how the show started, and so uh, there's something I think interesting that makes at least, at least me as a viewer want to lean in uh, when it, it's suddenly all of a sudden so quiet and tonally very different from what yeah it's also western 
at the end, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. Like, it's kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't fun for the actors, but uh, <laughs> there was so much poison oak and, and snakes, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming in today. Congratulations on the work. Congratulations on Thunderbolts. And I, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Uh, yeah, thank you thanks for, having, for us. having us. 